I Fear My Pain Interests You, Stephanie LaCava. Stephanie LaCava is a writer based in New York City. Her work has appeared in Harper's, Art Forum, Texer Kunst, The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, Vogue, and Interview. Her debut novel, The Super Rationals, was published by Semiotex in 2020. What's happening in I Fear My Pain Interests You? Margot is the child of renowned musician and the product of a particularly punky upbringing. Burnt out from the burden of expectation and the bad end of the worst relationship yet, she leaves New York and heads to the Pacific Northwest. She's seeking to escape both the eyes of the world and the echoing voice of the last bad man. But a chance encounter with a dubious doctor in a graveyard and the discovery of a dozen old film reels opens the door to a study of both the peculiarities of her body and the absurdities of her famous family. Uh, it's a literary take on Cinema du Corps. Uh, Stephanie LaCava's new novel is an, I will say it, audaciously sexy and moving exploration of culture and connections, bodies, and breakdowns. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Yeah, of course. Let's, okay, from the beginning, from the first paragraph and from my first read of this beautiful book, I was sort of overcome with your focus on textures and the way you bring descriptive text to the forefront of your narration. So given that the book's plot, per se, centers around your narrator's sensory perception, was this you trying to heighten senses as a backdrop for a character who is arguably doesn't feel pain and is plotless? No, I mean, I feel like I feel like that's probably just my style, if I'm honest. I wish I could take more credit for, but I feel like it kind of carries over into the other books, and that's probably just my style of writing in general. Say more. What do you What do you think your style of writing is? I think it's often to like look at things as if I'm seeing them for the first time, sort of like explaining them and what that experience is, and um, uh, because and it's often it's often about the scene like at one moment in time, you know, and sort of the idea that you're seeing and that hopefully has like a cinematic effect in terms of what you're, what it's generating. Why do you think that's your style? I don't know. I think that's just how, like, I don't, I don't think I set out to have a style, but I've realized when, mostly by what people have told me that that's like one of the things about my work. There's often, you know, clothes, objects, all of that is described more so than, you know, picking apart someone's interiority. It's more like presenting it head on and then you have to sort of make your own decisions. What appeals to you about that kind of prose? I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably all I can do. I don't know if I would like it from someone else. <laughs> I don't really set out. I don't know. I think, um, I just think that's how my, my mind works. My writing is very much like just a reflection of you know, what's going on in my mind when I'm thinking up a story. 
Okay, well, similarly, I had a friend read this book, and her reaction to the, you know, entire novel was one of total revulsion, and but in the most really? appetizing way. Like, literally, their text to me was like, I am obsessed with this book, but I just feel weird. Like, like she had watched something terribly sinister that, like, she wasn't supposed to have seen. Is that something you thought about when writing it? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of making someone uncomfortable is very much there in my work and also the things it shows without showing them. So maybe the discomfort is a bit of like a creeping discomfort. It's not like, I mean, the descriptions everyone has said like, oh, you know, there's all these bodily, you know, fluids and stuff, but they're not, they're actually kind of beautiful. They're not gross, the description. Do you know what I mean? Like there's an elegance, I think, to to eat the grossest thing, you know? She pops a blister and somehow it, it sounds a little different, but it's still popping a blister, you know? And so for me, it's not about like turning someone's stomach. It's about creating a dis-ease, you know, in like the atmosphere. What, what, tell me more, what draws you to that? What draws you to creating a dis-ease in the atmosphere? I don't know. I think like, you know, I think the way, you know, people, it's like a very base kind of thing, but like how do you know for work of art, has, you know, affected you or, and maybe I just, I don't have the ability to write something so beautiful that it's like, you're like struck by that. So for me, it's about kind of making you squirm a little and look into your own circumstances and your own world at that moment. And I also think the idea of like reconsidering, like I'm very against, you know, anyone whose belief is like straightforward one way or another who has no, just has no openness, even if they don't end up agreeing with it for like, you know, all the other sides of things. And maybe that comes from having grown up, like moving around a lot and in different countries and sort of learning very quickly that your worldview is, is a very limited one. So I, I sort of write from that perspective. I guess, I think that makes total sense. But I guess what I'm, I, I'm, I'm really trying to get at is like, clearly there's some sort of comfort in you in terms of sitting in discomfort. I mean, yeah, I definitely think so. Like, you know, it, it goes to the whole, you know, the whole line of psychoanalytic thinking or even just, I mean, not to give it so much or just even like the idea of like, you know, you're more comfortable being miserable or you're more comfortable with something to ruminate on. I mean, you could take it in that direction if you wanted. I'm not saying that's necessarily the truth, but, you know, there is that idea of um, also the idea of, you know, if you had like, you know, the whole, if you had this, certain kind of relationship with your mother and you know you then find and it was terrible and then you find a real loving relationship that feels uncomfortable which to me is the interesting flip side of that which is kind of more what I'm interested in is like we can feel discomfort and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you can make these grand generalizations of good bad and the you know and the other or whatever so Again, this narrator suffers from a medical symptom without spoiling too much where she fails to feel physical pain to a certain extent, but that almost heightens her inner emotional pain as we discover in the book in so many ways. And at one point she uses, I felt only the throb of prying eyes, the same as when I went out with my father or grandfather, nothing in my leg. In what ways is the throb of prying eyes harder to sit with than the pain of a bruised leg? I think there's this idea of the public and the private and the fact that, you know, I'm I'm more interested in like the the um, reverberations of fame in the sense of like what it does to a child who's then seen as this, I mean, a word that actually became popular when the book came out, I, I didn't really know about it much before was Nepo Baby. And then there, there continued to be a lot of writing and articles about it. So like this idea of 
what that means. And again, it's a bit uncomfortable for some people even to like look at that. They're like, oh, but that's certainly a privilege. But, you know, in Stephanie world, the privilege has a flip side too. And so we're going to talk about all the things. And just because you write about it doesn't mean you're endorsing it. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah. In Stephanie world? In Stephanie world, what's the flip side, babes? (laughs) Well, no, like the flip side is like, you know, yes, it's a book about a girl with great privilege, but she is still in pain and it's talking about her pain. And that's not to be discounted. It doesn't mean because that's, you know, that is her circumstance and this is what the book's about. And it's not saying that that's everyone's circumstance, you know? Is that something that was informing your writing of this text from the very beginning or something you, you came to after like, oh, this is who this person is? I mean, I think it's just, I think there's a lot of talk and it's really important about, you know, my, a lot of my writing is about class, but not in a way that on the surface I would, I would say it, someone would say is good or you'd be proud of. But once you really read it, you understand what it's doing. It's skewering those worlds. It's like picking them, it's presenting them head on. And yes, it is presenting those worlds, but if you're actually reading or paying attention, it's showing the other side of them. What interests you about the other side of those worlds? Again, I think it goes back to what I said before, just about I'm interested in in, in nothing as an absolute, like what's on the other side, you know, and what's, you know, there's no one, there's no best, there's no... I mean, you know, I, I want to see all the sides and all the parts. It's giving Emma Klein. <laughs> Is it? Oh, she's so lovely. I like her work and her very much. No, she's incredibly talented, and as are you, in my, in, in my opinion. And you, and while you're not the same writer by any sort of means, I, I don't want to be reductive. Um, I do think that you both explore femininity within class and the sort of like weird privileges that come with it but also the weird, like, aggressions that come with it, too. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think I think um, beyond femininity, I would say for me, it's in, like, networks of culture workers, well, whether it be it's in music or art, you know. Though it, that always seems to be something that finds its way. They're always sort of these cosmopolitan um, creators or think of themselves as creators, do you know? Like... And that's also playing with the game of who is an artist, who is a creator. And I'm interested in all the machinations of those worlds beyond just making of the thing, you know? So that's always a consideration, too. (laughs) Okay, so now you and I talked briefly about the book last summer. uh, And when you found out I read it, you were literally giddy at the thought that I had finished the book and came to the ending. And I was equally giddy to talk to you about it because the ending is a very giddy moment. The ending is wild. And we won't spoil it for the, the podcast, but... Wait, can I tell you something funny, though? Yes. I just did um, a senior seminar at USC, and um, one of the, the, the girls in the class goes, before I read a book, every single book I've ever read, I read the last line first. And my face went... Like, and then I wanted to discuss immediately how that had changed her whole experience. Do you know what I mean? I was not expecting that. It was funny. Yeah. And so she meant it to your text as well. Well, yeah, she did the same thing, which really to any other book might have not been as radical as doing it to my book. Do you know what I mean? So Totally. Your book is particularly like those last few pages are particularly tense intentionally, I think. 
Okay, so having, again, with no spoilers, she did that, she read that, she's a, new, she's a student, per se. How do you think that went? How do you think she read it? No, she, I mean, she, I, I think for her it was more about, I don't think it did any, I mean, I'm sure it didn't have the same punch or whatever. Yeah. But I don't think it took away from the story in other ways, you know? I, I think, because it, 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 it creates like this, backwards forwards mystery anyway like what happened you know and then there's already the mystery of what what's her problem in the beginning right but I was again you were giddy to talk about the ending and I was giddy to talk to you about it because it is such a like momentous occasion in the novel and again we won't spoil but it's really pleasing to that see that excitement I've shared with other like other readers have had like did you read the end did you read the end did you read the end <laughs> there's kind of something like extra exciting to do that to the author themselves like oh you're excited too there I got to those last few pages um what excites you about the ending again without spoilers if, if that's possible well I think I think it's again I think it's all back to the same thing for me it's like I had one uh experience of it in writing it but I really want to know what yours is and it might not be the same of course so I'm excited to hear how what you thought it was again it's it's hard to do this without making spoilers i know because like i would tell you i don't want to do a spoiler but like i would tell you one person a very close friend of mine actually came back with an interpretation of the entire book that i had never even thought of so for me that's like exciting yeah. you know just to hear like those kind of things um Again, without a spoiler, do you think our narrators changed by the end of the novel or are they the same? I think she maybe hasn't fully processed everything and what happens is kind of a, a snap thing that, just like anything, sadly, that happens in terms of accidents or physical whatever in our lives, it happens quickly and it takes time to process what's happened. Was that moment something you... Um, orchestrated the whole novel around or did it sort of organically develop no it was more organic I didn't really know exactly that that's what was gonna happen and it was really satisfactory you know and you realize <laughs> some people hate it though some people get upset too um you know everyone has a different reaction what, what, what was your as it was coming out of you and your fingertips what was your reaction I think for me it was just about this idea of her taking back her own story in the sense that nobody, no matter what you experience, no matter how bad it is, no matter what, you know, your childhood was like, there's a moment where you can like decide to counter that wiring. You believe that? I think so. I mean, I like to try and believe that. Like, I think we can all, I mean, why else would we all do the work? We're not condemned by our trauma, you know? The narrator herself observes the father role, very obviously, um, in her love interest, which is an older, you know, quote-unquote director who fills in this role for her. Do you think older men ever satisfactory fill that role romantically for girls who are just chasing after their first love, their dad? I mean, I don't know if it's ever totally conscious even. Like, there'll be moments where, you know... Sometimes it's in the way they look. Sometimes it's in having like the older, you know, the older man. It's It could be all these things. Um, I, I don't think, and that's again goes back full circle to your first question when we talked about the back, you know, the back side of the psychoanalytics of the book. And I mean, for sure, 
you know, it's funny though, in this narrative, I don't think that was really, that could have been explored, but the dad would have had to be a different character then. Because right. it's interesting that the, the dad is like this very like, he's not like a dark guy. Right. You know, he's like the hapless, like clueless. So it's not, she's not actually doing that in this story. Wait, the actual dad or the director? The dad, sorry. So like, like, like Margot's, in being with the director, she's not looking for her dad because that would be something else, you know? So then what is the director for her? The director is an older man that she has a love and love interest relationship with. I mean, I think it's also the, a lot of the book is about this idea of that, like, you know, you are, I mean, in our contemporary moment, in the way the world is, it's hard to divorce a love and trust from the trappings that surround them, both in terms of networks, in terms of uh, mentorship, in terms of, and again, we're not, the book is not a Me Too book. It's not going into that. It's just going into the realities of that always being part of a relationship, right? Why, why do you say the book is not a Me Too book? What do you mean? What's a Me Too book? Well, because she's not, like, blaming the guy. It's not like, like, this is, like, he's gonna, and there, there's no, like, redemption of that kind. In fact, the opposite in a way, which, because, um, you know, also people are like, which I kind of like, again, this is what I'm, people are like, oh, I love Graves. He's so hot. Oh, he's like, so hot is, like, my next question. <laughs> Like, and you know what? That's real too, you know? Like, we're not always attracted to things that are good. I mean, when are we often, are we even attracted to things that are good for us, you know? Okay. So, I mean, speaking of Graves, go Graves. Um, in what ways does he fulfill these, like, arguably cis-hetero, and maybe, you know, it's less reductive or more reductive than that, I don't know, uh, female desires? And if you say he... Does he, in what ways does he fulfill those heteronormative desires? I think in the sense that, one, he's, you know, there's, like, this very, like, clear thing. Like, if you if you remove, when you look at the, like, metaphoric through line of the disorder, it's like, he gets me. It's literally the definition of he gets me. Because he, he's the only one who knows what's wrong with her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And if you look at it that way, it's kind of brilliant because it's like, he gets me. Yeah. Yes. He's the only one who knows what's wrong with me. No one else has ever known, you know? Yeah. So he's the only one who's what's wrong with me. And then another musing that, um, you know, your narrative takes is, this is the dangerous thing about a breakup with someone so much older and so much more accomplished when you are young, desirous of credibility and short on self-love. When he goes, he rips those little medals right off your chest and carries them away with him. Yeah, it's funny, right? Like, we think about what makes a romantic relationship and, you know, down to its barest thing, it's like who your sexual partner is, right? And then it depends. People have varying degrees of what else it is. You know, it depends on... Like, I always find it funny that we use the term dating like, just to mean when someone's sleeping with someone. Right. Like, I always... I'm like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, it means different things, right? And it's funny that it's become this, like, catch-all... To just and even like someone can be like they're dating it doesn't and then people go oh it doesn't mean their boyfriend like what does it all even mean do you know what I mean and I um I think in this case it's also this idea that is again it's very true like none of us it's hard to say you're in a romantic relationship for not to get some kind of validation whether it's that you're attractive which is the very basic form of validation that you're lovable 
So of course it would also have to do with that you're that you would think you'd want to be with someone who admires your abilities. I mean, at least I thought that. I'm learning more and more sometimes that sometimes people don't think that, that they feel who they partner with. And I don't know if I agree with this because, and I guess I think it's to my parents' credit, but like I always thought that who I partnered with would be um, someone who I would share respect for their work and them for my work. I wouldn't want someone who was looking for someone they could dominate, you know what I mean? Or like condescend to or like, feel power. I don't know, but some people do apparently or don't know they do. It's often subconscious, you know? I'm kind of also thinking of how the narrative concludes that being with him was like having, and I'm quoting, to audition repeatedly like while not even realizing there was never a part. Well, that's like, that's also something that's interesting for me, right? Like I, I hear some of my, some girls when I listen to like how they're dealing with stuff, they'll be like, um, oh, he used... He's, um, he's, he used me. And I'm just always like, okay, well, yes, in, if that means the end game is always the end game. Like, maybe I have kind of a twisted way of, like, of seeing these things. But, like, it also mirrors the fact that she's an actress when she says audition. It's like, if the, if the idea is to have a one-on-one -on -one partnership, that is the audition. You know? You need to, to be rewarded by the, the stakes of the audition is to get a one-on-one -on -one partnership. No, no, you're auditioning to be their girlfriend. I mean, that's what a date is in a way. So, so why do you think we do this with lovers? Why, why, why do we audition repeatedly when and, and, and we know there's never? Because otherwise, everyone would be for everyone, right? I'm thinking of the line: "This is the dangerous thing about a breakup with someone so much older and so much more accomplished when you are young." As I was quoting, desirous of credibility and short on self-love. When he goes, he rips those little medals right off your chest again and writes them away with him. Like, I'm still thinking about that line. I mean, I think it's like like anything. If you're dating, let's just say you're a musician and you're a younger musician and you're dating a, um, a, someone who's had been a really successful magician musician in the way you're interested, right? Because this can mean different things, which the book also deals with. Like some people want punk credibility. Some people want mass appeal. Like being successful is all relative, right? So, but let's say it matches up with what you want. You feel that him being with you confers on you kind of validation. And it's not only in your own heart, it's in the eyes of people around who are watching. So it's a performance too. Yeah, I mean, yes, in a way, just in the sense that like, you know, like you're with this guy, so so you know it's going to have cultural capital, so to speak. So so what what is going on in your head as the writer when you put in a character like Graves with all that in mind? This hot guy who fills all these like, you know, ideals that are not normally like filled. Like what's going on in your head when you're like, I'm going to write this guy? It's also interesting because it's on purpose. You know, she's in this like house in the middle of nowhere. So nobody knows she's with Graves. Graves and like, it's not about that, which to me is also interesting, right? Because dating in the modern world and if you're a semi-public figure or even in your own industry is, you know, there's a kind of capital in who you're with. Always, yeah. And it's a kind of vetting too, you know, if you like, you're like, oh, if she's good enough for him, she must be X, Y, or Z. Except this relationship happens in a vacuum. All of those things are true, but I still want to know like what's going on in your head when you're the writer and you're like, I'm going to write in this guy. This guy is going to be like this and he's going to do these things. Like what's, what, what is motivating you when that moment is happening? I mean, I think it was also important that he not be like some kind of 
blanket evil person because he's not, you know, he's a multi, you know, he's attractive, he's charming, he's mysterious, he's hard to figure out, he's, he's, you know, physically attractive and mentally attractive because who doesn't love that kind of a rebus? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and I think for her, it was just like, it was literally like the definition of he gets me when he tells her, and if he withholds that information, it's like, I need to get that information, right? Much in the same way, sometimes when we meet someone, let's say another storyline could be if two people have said, understand each other's worldview because they've both, you know, dealt with depression in a certain way. He gets me. Whereas in this case, it's a doctor who can actually say what the thing is, you know? Absolutely. But what I'm kind of getting from that and, you know, having read your, you know, prior works and you in general, I, I would, I would, you know, dare say that you like have an appetite for, um, the sort of ways that humans interact with each other within like socially norm or out norm boundaries. And again, correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong. Is this something you're thinking about? You know what I mean? When you go to the grocery store, when you do your errands, when you're like picking up whatever, are you looking around you and are you looking at people and kind of being like, no, 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 but what are you actually doing? And what do you actually mean? Is that going on? Is that a stretch to say that that's going on? No, I think it is, but I think it's a subconscious. Like I feel a lot of things in like terms of like energetically or knowing them without processing immediately that I'm knowing them. So yeah, I do. I mean, when I read a news story that I find upsetting, I get really viscerally up, like upset. Like when I, Sometimes I'll feel something's off with a person. I won't know exactly what it is, but I'll know something's off. Do you know what I mean? And I think, yeah, I think I'm always thinking that. But again, it's not conscious. It's not like, oh, I'm some great mind who's thinking about these things. It's more like that's the way I feel through the world, you know? Totally. But the, and especially with that in mind, I kind of want to talk about that moment where unconscious meets conscious, which is the writing part right where it's like things that you don't even realize you're thinking about are coming out on the pages and so again I, I don't I don't think there's a better way of saying it there's this moment of where the unconscious mind meets the conscious mind who's conscientiously doing something um I don't expect you to have grand answers I don't expect every writer to have grand answers but because I think you do it so masterfully I'm kind of curious of what that moment of intersection looks like feels like sounds like is like it's really strange. I mean, I think writing this book was a kind of exorcism, as with most of my books. Like, the actual writing happens really fast. And it just, like, and it, usually it's prompted by, you know, some need for resolution or, you know, sorting through something or whatever it is. And so, yeah, that's always, like, again, a kind of subconscious is always at work, right? You can't turn it off. That's why it's the subconscious. So... Whereas I'm not like, I don't have like, you know, like diagrams on my walls, like, like, you know, to catch a murderer, which is like, this character does this or this character does, like, I don't write like that. So I think a lot of it is subconscious. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of it comes from what people tell me to be able to see my own subconscious intention or, you know, again, but like any work of art or else, you know, you create intentionality. Given the narrator has this sort of medical condition that creates a dissonance for her between internal pain and external pain, and given the various traumas of her upbringing, and you know, at what given half the women I know, if not more, when when Graves observes that no one can hurt you, not if you want them to, 
you know, it's something I want to tell to my girlfriends all the time. And then Margot, things can be real without conflict. Margot responds, can they? Can they? I mean, I think that's interesting, right? Because it's also like this idea of like, if you write a utopian world, like how do we get there, right? Like if you're in a real loving relationship, is it real if there's never any kind of butting of heads? Like this is like the problem with being human, the problem with the, like the problem with, even again, back to what we talked about at the beginning, there's always some sort of like tail eating going on somewhere. If you are the kind of person who's thinking about the ways that a person is or is not and recognizes the nuance in between that um, and also likes to sit in a place of discomfort that also comes with a place of nuance. So you, you've spent these checks sort of like navigating that world of like people who are trying to build their identity in a certain demographic or in a certain world and they have their own trauma that's informing it and vice versa. Like where 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 are you going next? What what's what are you thinking about next? When you thinking about all, it's such a big thing. Also, I'm saying that with like honestly all. Like you're constantly thinking about all the ways in which people are not simple, uh, and you sort of have written a bunch of texts that sort of come to peace with the sort of idea that people are not simple. So now that we know that, and I, that you know that in this very satisfactory way. What is the next thing you want to explore? I think I, I, I'm always really interested in, in connection. Like what makes it happen? Why it happens? For me, and uh, adding on to that, which is also a separate story, but you know, I have two children and I've sort of never touched that. And now I think it might be time to touch the motherhood thing, you know? And, uh, and that brings up, themes of connection too because like for example what I always am so shaken by is that you know you, you have these kids my son when he was in three a threes group they're just connect they make friends with certain people it's not equivocally with everyone yeah like yes you take you invite everyone to a party and yes there are these things you do you know as but they still have a best friend right and I don't pick no nope. the teacher doesn't pick you know and it's not because I'm friends with the and I just like that kind of thing fascinates me. Uh, the, the people who you don't choose but end up part of your lives? No, no, no. The idea that even children and e mostly and most importantly children just are connected to certain people and aren't to others. And somehow the world is a stew that works out where most people find someone to connect to. Do you know what I mean? Like if if you think about it, like I hate math, but like. If you think about it probability-wise, it's always, like, fascinating to think about, right? Because everybody butts heads with someone but then is in love or loves or whatever someone else. Do you know what I mean? And why does that happen and how? And what a perfect storm, you know? What an imperfect, perfect storm. I am happy to conclude on that note, to be honest, because I truly think that that is, like, a Stephanie LaCava, like... That is the Stephanie LaCava weather forecast. <laughs> yeah. It's the Stephanie LaCava fiction forecast, weather forecast, like... An imperfect, perfect storm. <laughs> no, and you go in and you're like, and you explore that. And I'm so grateful for anyone who's willing to sit in the nuance of things because I truly believe that things are nuanced more than they are. Better. But I also think, you know, at the, uh, yeah, uh, let's end there because that's a good place to end. But <laughs> I mean, go on. I'd love to hear it. No, I just think, you know, yes, I wrote a disturbing story, but I hope that the thing that comes out of it is exactly that and not the disturbing part. It's that... We're all, you're all going to be okay. Then why did you make it disturbing? Because you have to be a bit disturbed 
to be shaken to that place to see that there is nuance. No one's perfect. No one's got the straight story. No one's got the, we're all going to have discomforts, but it's, it's in service of something else. And at least for me, they've become in service of being able to write books. So maybe that's like the, the ultimate, you know, for me, how I survive. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, listeners, you can pick up a copy of I Fear My Pain Will Interest You, and it will, at Library St. Henry Books, as well as many other indie booksellers. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.